Hi, welcome back to another episode of Real World Serverless, a podcast where I speak with real world practitioners and get their stories from the trenches. Today, I'm joined by Ricardo Torres from New10. Hey, man, welcome to the show. Uh, hey, man, thanks for inviting me. It's uh, so good to be here. So before we get into how New10 is using serverless, can you just uh, give us a quick introduction about uh, who is New10 and uh, your experience uh, uh, at New10 so far? Yeah, sure. So New10 is a, is a startup initiated by the bank ABN Emerald in 2017. So in fact, we actually just celebrated three years since Go Live. Um, what we do, we provide loans to small and medium enterprises and also independent contractors in the Netherlands. And these uh, range within the five to 250k euro. And this year, we also released a Corona relief product uh, to the market to, to aid uh, uh, our clients in these uh, really uh, hard times that we are facing, all of us. And what we do for this, we use a lot of uh, serverless tooling. But basically, that's what Newton does. And on my personal experience, I come from a background of API development. So I worked uh, before for a company called MyCujo. We were doing football live streaming, and I was responsible for the API development in there. And that was uh, also how I started a Newton. So basically, we wanted to to create all these uh, APIs uh, for our microservices because in the beginning we had some monolith applications uh, that was basically there for the MPP. And we just wanted to make the shift to 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 serverless and to APIs for with microservices. So that's basically uh, the experience I have uh, nowadays at Newton. Recently, I became also a tech evangelist. So yeah, my role changed a bit. I, I still do software engineering, but I'm quite focused on evangelism uh, internally at Newton as well. Okay, so in this case, uh, how do you guys uh, settle on the using serverless technologies in the first place? Well, I guess the finance is not known for being adventurous when it comes to choosing technology choices. Uh, so how do new tenants settle on using serverless in this case? Uh, yeah, that's an interesting story, actually. Uh, I think the decision was made really on the early days, uh, back in 2017. So basically, we had really high pressure to deliver a strict budget uh, we also had a strong belief in DevOps. Uh, these all, this combination of factors uh, make make it easier for us to to choose serverless, right? Because with serverless, we managed to set up the whole ITM platform in less than nine months, which was really a, a great achievement. So for us to launch a product from zero to live in nine months, so that was quite good. And we didn't have to spend the time managing the resources that are now made obsolete by serverless, right? I mean, resources still exist, you just don't, don't manage them directly. So that's, I think, the, the really added benefit of the serverless part. And even for personal projects nowadays, I, serverless is my go-to stack because, yeah, it's such an amazing thing that for us developers, we don't need to take care of a lot of stuff. So I think that reduces a lot of the burden we usually have. Uh, if we choose a different path. And it's common to see nowadays a lot of companies spending a lot of time setting up Kubernetes and uh, the lower level parts of the infra, uh, where they could just for the MVP, just go straight to serverless and build something that works for the initial stage and they can evolve from there. So that's a quite interesting what we did. And so far it still uh, works quite well. We evolved a lot since uh, we started and we're more and more into serverless. So nowadays, uh, I think it's just growing the amount of serverless, uh, uh, the amount of uh, the serverless stack we have. Okay, so in that case, uh, can you give us a bird's eye view of your architecture? Sounds like you've got a lot of APIs, a lot of uh, microservices, um, but I guess uh, you must mm -hmm. be doing a lot of uh, background data processing as well, maybe some machine learning stuff. Give us a high level overview of uh, how your architecture looks like and uh, how different things fit together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I'm going to go like from, let's say from bottom top on this one. So basically what we have nowadays is like we have around 150 API endpoints, uh, around 460 lambdas running on production, 35 for gate containers. So not everything is serverless. We have uh, quite some stuff on containers as well, but still the serverless uh, part, especially with lambdas, uh, make up for, I think, two thirds of the, the, the services we have. And then we have 
one main general purpose SNS topic. And we have around 60 SQS queues for internal eventing. And on there, we have around 350,000 events per month. And the persistence layer is backed by either DynamDB, S3, or RDS. Um, and the grouping part, uh, these all these resources are grouped into 45 client micro uh, client facing microservices. We have the microservices they encapsulate the, and abstract the network logic and data. And it, we also do the single. Uh, we have we believe a lot of them the single responsibility for this serverless for these services. Sorry. So it means that for serverless service, uh, each lambda is responsible for a given endpoint or method. So we don't have a single Lambda uh, dealing with uh, three or five different HTTP methods. So if I have a post on a given endpoint, that's responsibility of a single Lambda. Um, there are some interesting pros and cons on this one, but that's the approach we, we, we took. And everything is also grouped into five business domains. And the service to service communication is going through, like I mentioned, the SNS or SQS part. And also HTTP, we have a lot of service to service communication going internally through our own APIs. And on the application landscape, everything is managed on the AWS infra. I mean, the part of for the backend. And we have front end and GraphQL, uh, also powered by AWS. The GraphQL layer is actually running on a container. So that's not serverless yet. We have also integration with uh, Salesforce. We have the Google Cloud Platform for marketing purposes. We also use BigQuery in there. And we have quite some third-party vendors because, for instance, we uh, believe a lot in Cloud Native. So we have a lot of vendors for signing documents, for uh, verifying identities, basically to tell if a person is who they are uh, based on personal documents like passport, etc. And we also have uh, a powerful uh, vendor that actually takes care. It's basically it provides us with a ledger for balance, interest, and transaction management of our loans. So I think that's the, the big overview uh, from from our uh, stack at the moment. Okay, that's that's great. Uh, and there's certainly there's a lot of uh, a lot of things that I find interesting. So I'm going to ask you a bit more about those. Uh, but one thing you mentioned, which I found interesting, is that uh, when you were talking about uh, uh, you believe in cloud native and therefore you use a lot of vendors to do all these other things so you don't have to do them yourself, um, that is different to a lot of the, I guess, the popular definition for cloud native, which is run everything in containers so that you are really portable between clouds, which I find honestly ridiculous because uh, how is something native to the cloud uh, being categorized by its portability of being able to run in your own uh, data centers. Um, uh, so how do you guys define cloud native? Um, basically, what we uh, maybe I could have used the, the wrong term, but basically what, what I mean is that we try uh, to outsource resources, especially if resources that we would have to manage ourselves. So imagine that uh, a startup so small like us, if we had to implement ourselves these uh, verification process for identities uh, would be a really uh, big uh, project, right? It would involve a lot of people. So basically to check the, the veracity of a passport or any other personal document, you need really spe specialized people, uh, which at the time we didn't have and we still don't. So that's why we outsource this. So maybe the term is not really cloud native, but whenever we can uh, use uh, a vendor to, to provide the features we need or the tooling, we're going to rely on them. So th th that that's more of the definition I was, uh, I was looking for, actually. Right. So you think, so what you're describing is uh, this uh, mindset that we probably call uh, serverless first or being serviceful, whereby as much as possible, we want to consume services that does something for us so that we can focus on the business differentiating things that our customers actually want from us rather than just you know, managing infrastructures and all of that, right? Yeah, exactly. Yes, exactly. Right on. Gotcha. Um, so you're running containers and the Lambda side by side. So how do you decide when to use Lambda, when to use uh, containers? Uh, so yeah, we have 
some limitations, right? So sometimes we choose containers to work around uh, limitations from our cloud provider, in this case, AWS. So uh, we have services that handles a lot of file uploads and at the time we decided not to use S3 for those, uh, which meant that the file actually needed to go through the service first before reaching any other part of the, the backend or the persistence layer. So that meant we couldn't use API Gateway and Lambda, right? Because of the, the, the payload and timeout limits of, uh, of that integration, which is a six megabytes and 29 seconds, which is of course not enough for uploading files. And in different cases, we tried to actually start with Lambda. So we had an interesting case where we had a Python service that was backed by RDS. And at the time, uh, VPCs were really slow, right? Uh, that's something you know quite well. So in some cases, we're seeing a cold start of up to 10 seconds. And even though we kept most of the lambdas warm, there are still some cases that reached this uh, cold start of 10 seconds. And that's really not something we can, we can have on our customer-facing services. That shouldn't be the case anymore since they redone the whole networking layer for Lambda and Fargate because of uh, Firecracker. And um, okay. they were able to re basically reimagine the whole networking layer uh, around the VPCs. And so now you shouldn't be seeing those uh, those horrific 10-second uh, uh, co-stars uh -huh, anymore. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So nowadays we, ha we have a, a few more lambdas, not, sometimes not really talking to RDS, but talking to, let's say, to some uh, service that must be running on a VPC. So yeah, in those cases, um, we have some lambdas in VPC and they are way faster than they used to be at the time. But that's, we had to work with what we had like uh, two years ago. So basically this service had to make the switch. So it was running on Fargate uh, with uh, ECS because of that, because we just couldn't actually uh, make it work with, so, uh, with those uh, slow cold starts. And also we have most Java services, they run on containers. Uh, we have a lot of uh, Java knowledge uh, internally and we have quite some service written in Java. And even though we have some Java lambdas, most of them are not really customer facing directly just because the, the cold start for those uh, runtimes are still not there. If you compare it to, to other languages in terms of cold start, still quite bad with JavaScript and Node.js internally. Uh, sometimes in some service, we're reaching cold start of 800 milliseconds. So that's quite amazing, right? Uh, and quite acceptable from a SLA point of view. Gotcha. Yeah, with Java, the co-stars are still not quite the same level as uh, with Node or Python or Golang. Um, so in this case, how many teams do you have uh, working on all these different, um, all these uh, 150 APIs? Uh, so I think I have, we have in total around 10 teams working uh, on these uh, APIs. We have uh, six string teams. They are directly aligned with our business domains. And we also have the enabling teams, and that's how we call it, like a tooling team, which is the team that I'm part of right now. Uh, we have a platform team that takes care of the whole platform, the AWS accounts, organizations, and, and provides quite some uh, infra and guidelines and best practice for us developers. We have automation team and also have one data team. So I think in total, we are talking about around 35 engineers uh, spread around the backend, frontend, also Salesforce engineers, the automation part, like I mentioned, the cloud and the data. Okay, so in this case, uh, you have uh, some enabling teams, uh, well, in enablement teams and uh, inf uh, infra teams. Uh, so how do you go about, so I guess, organizing your code into repositories? Are you doing like micro repos uh, where you have one repo per microservice or are you doing some one repo and then do some tooling around uh, knowing which service to deploy uh, when they've changed? Uh, we, we are using a micro repo, so each service uh, will have a dedicated repository for that service. Uh, we also use monorepos, but not for the services themselves. We use for libraries. So for instance, we have a lot of NPM packages for Node, and those are living in, in a single repository. So we have some other internal tooling. So like the framework for Lambdas we had to develop, uh, it, it's made of uh, several packages, and they all live in the same repository uh, managed by actually Learner. So we have not a lot of experience in there. Uh, we kind of like it the way we do it in monorepos, but I think we just need uh, to experiment a bit more and explore, I think, different tooling 
because at the moment Lorna is not being uh, the best tool for the job in our case at least. Yeah, Lerner is uh, really powerful, but it's also um, can be quite, uh, I guess, opinionating and fixed in the, how it does things. I do know it's got like an ecosystem of uh, plugins that uh, you can use as well, uh, but I haven't explored them much myself. So in this case, uh, I guess uh, you, you know all, of the, all these different teams are using uh, Lambda and also using uh, containers to build things. Are you doing anything to sort of ensure consistency? Because it sounds like you've got that, the shared infra team that are responsible for setting up the AWS environments. And uh, I imagine there's some guidelines around uh, some best practices and security things you guys should be doing. How do you go about in making sure that everyone is doing the right thing uh, and, uh, in, and propagating some of those best practices? Mm -hmm. So I think that the keyword here is trust. We, we really trust our engineers. Uh, to, to actually do the right thing and we provide the tooling uh, for that to happen. So basically we give trust and freedom to innovate, but we verify using automated tooling. For instance, we rely a lot on AWS config to tell us uh, if a resource is being tagged or if a custom authorized was attached to a given uh, API gateway uh, and Lambda. So these kind of things we are always verified. And our long-term vision is to actually to make it easy to do the right thing and quite hard to do the wrong thing. But we still allow them, like I mentioned, to actually create different stuff, right? So you're not really, you don't need to always use the tooling because sometimes you have, let's say, uh, I had a case, for instance, I was working on a service that was really integrated with Incognito. And at the time we didn't have a Terraform module to, to provide what I needed. So I had to create my own module according to, to uh, the specs for that service. And basically that service doesn't use any shared module because it's not something that's shared. This is the only service relying on Cognito. That's the, the kind of authentication part we have. So basically in there, uh, we define everything from scratch. Of course, the, the cloud engineers will help us to make sure that we are not uh, setting uh, rules that should be, shouldn't be there. And a good example, for instance, is like when you have to deploy an S3 bucket, right? There are, I think, several ways of doing that. And engineers can either use our Terraform module that we provide that comes baked with encryption with all the policies that we defined uh, as a company, uh, meaning that the, the, the bucket will be private by default. But it's possible to, to either you create your own Terraform module or you deploy using the serverless framework, which is something we also use. And by doing this, uh, it gives room for you to make a mistake, right? You can deploy a uh, S3 bucket without encryption or missing some rules. Maybe it was public. So that's not intended, right? What's going to happen is that we're going to be alerted that this was done and we're going to be in touch with the responsible engineers to understand if it was a mistake, if it was on purpose. But I think all goes around the tooling we provide. And we have, like I mentioned, the Terraform modules, serverless plugins. Uh, for logging, for instance, we have quite some logging standards and all the servers must comply with these logging standards. So we provide libraries for logging and such libraries, they have obfuscation built in to prevent sensitive information being leaked. And so we also had the Lambda framework, which is like uh, really based on CoaJS. It's like a middleware framework, kind of relates to MIDI as well, MIDI.js. And the only difference is not uh, this one is a um, framework that was built with our use case in mind. So it's a really uh, powerful, really small and provides us with uh, most of the things we do. So we have middlewares for SQS, for SNS, for HTTP, for DynamDB, for S3, a lot of these things. So whenever engineers are starting a new service, in this case, a JavaScript or TypeScript service, they can rely on this tooling to make sure that uh, they are on the right path. But of course, mistakes can still be made and we always try to verify and, and keep an open mind and try to understand the use case. All right, uh, great to hear that you guys are using some kind of uh, middleware engine to encapsulate a lot of the cross kind of concerns. Um, but I wanted to circle back to what you talked about earlier about the Terraform uh, versus uh, serverless. Um, how do you decide uh, when do you when do you use uh, Terraform uh, versus uh, Server Framework, and also how do you mix the two together, like sharing resources that's been created in one in the other, uh, or reference them rather? 
uh, how do you go about sort of using that and deciding when to which one to use? Mm -hmm. So uh, initially, we had quite some resources being created uh, in the early days, especially directly from the serverless framework, right? But I think once you get used to uh, cloud formation, I think you you can easily understand that this is not the best approach because yeah, cloud formation has. Uh, all kinds of uh, weird scenarios where the stack gets inconsistent and sometimes you have to destroy the stack, you need to recreate resources. And that's something you cannot do with the database uh, with your persistence layer, right? Unless it's a caching table, maybe you can do that. But more often than not, everything that must be persisted, uh, we have with Terraform. So for instance, the Cognito part I mentioned, all the databases are defined within Terraform, S3 buckets, et cetera, et cetera. And on the serverless part, I think the only thing is that's defining there are the things that can be removed and should be removed if, if the, the stack is gone. So for instance, the API gateway, if we ever remove that service, we want the API gateway to be gone with it. So I think that's more or less the criteria we use for defining what's uh, defined from Terraform and what's from serverless framework. And the integration between these two happens. Uh, we have a serverless plugin that integrates with the Terraform outputs which means that from your serverless YAML definition or all the configuration files, you can just refer uh, to the Terraform outputs. And basically during deploy time, the Terraform, the, the serverless plugin is going to get the outputs from Terraform and inject on your configuration. So basically you don't need to be to, to care about ARNs or referencing uh, resources by name or other identifiers. You can just use the Terraform outputs for that and you can just reference easily and then you have uh, everything in a single place. Is that a custom plugin that you guys have written for yourselves, or is that there's some other um, some public one? No, it's a it's a custom public. Uh, sorry, it's a custom uh, plugin. Uh, at the moment, it's private for sure. That's something we want to to open source as together with the with the Lambda framework I mentioned. Uh, we've been using it for I, I think two years by now, and I think it's really battle tested. We made a lot of improvements. So those libraries are for sure good candidates for us to, to open source. Okay. I want to go back to something you mentioned at the start of the, that, uh, um, that conversation about how CloudFormation is not the best approach to some of these uh, persistence uh, layers like DimeDB tables. Um, can you give me some examples of uh, things that you can change with Terraform, but that you can't change with CloudFormation? Um, it's not about really about the changing, but it's more about the problem with the stack because what we had issues, for instance, we in some service we reached the limits on the stack. So what happened? We need to create an extra stack, right? And sometimes this is not a straightforward uh, process. We use the, the, the famous plugin uh, serverless uh, split stacks to do that. Um, but of, more often than not, if you don't start already using that plugin, if you introduce that plugin on a later stage, you can get quite uh, some inconsistencies on your stack. So it's advised that you destroy the stack before uh, splitting it in multiple stacks so you can have more than the 200 resources limit. So we had to, to uh, balance this a lot. And basically Terraform was, uh, it's just, in my opinion, it's just a better tool for the job in terms of defining uh, infra in a single place where most things can be shared and the community around Terraform, I must say, it's a, a lot bigger than CloudFormation. So you have uh, providers, you, not only for AWS, but you have for everything. We use Terraform for the center integration, PagerDuty, uh, Datadog. So we rely on Terraform for a lot of stuff, not really uh, related to AWS. So I think that's just a common place for us to have our resources. They are not managed by that. We don't want to be managed by the serverless framework and hence uh, CloudFormation. Okay. I think uh, CloudFormation also has support for uh, third-party resources now, but I don't know how well, how widely adopted they are and how big the, the ecosystem is. Uh, I've written custom plugins, or sorry, custom resources for CloudFormation before for things like Datadog myself, uh, but certainly with uh, Terraform, you get that out of the box. Um, so, but uh, for that uh, 200 resources limit, I've uh, I've transformed, I guess, existing CloudFormation stacks uh, using the Split Stacks plugin, uh, and that was fine. Um, I guess I'm quite interested to hear what specific problems that you ran into. 
I guess there's one thing that I've run into in the past is uh, uh, because of uh, uh, some of the resources already exist so that you have to do some clever things around the naming of resources and uh, things like that. Is that what you were referring to that it's hard to go from not using the SplitStacks plugin to start using it on a live project? Um, so that, that's something actually we, we had last year. So that's, uh, it's, it's been quite a while. But basically what I had on one of the services I was responsible for is that we reached the 200 resources limit, right? And once we introduced the serverless split stack, since it was not from the beginning, we started having on different occasions, like uh, the cloud formation issue of uh, cyclic uh, dependencies, right? So uh, resources from different stacks uh, referencing each other. So that was something that was quite hard for us to, to manage because it's... Uh, Something that's decided by the plugin itself, how the, the, the resources are, are going to be split. So you have different rules. You can do it per name or per group, and you have different options in there. But basically, the option we chose was had this issue that we ended up with the cyclic, the cyclic dependencies. And to actually fix that, we had to remove the stack. So that was uh, quite bad. And later on, we discovered that there is a, a, a note on the readme of the serverless stack plugins. Uh, the split stacks uh, plugin that actually tells you that, that once you, st if you, you need to start from scratch using this plugin, if you introduce or if you change the way you are grouping the stack, then um, unintended uh, things can happen. So that's something that's, uh, there is a disclaimer on the readme of the, that plugin actually. And that's something we really faced. So that was uh, quite interesting to, to, to work around. Yeah, so one of the things that, that you could do there, uh, I guess this kind of veer towards the um, more advanced use of that plugin is that, that you can write your own uh, stack map um, modules that you can control how the resources are grouped and then you can sort of uh, decide uh, which resources go into which uh, nested stack. Um, so for something like this, where you are migrating from an existing CloudFormation stack that's not... Uh, that's not using the split uh, stacks plugin. You probably should be doing that instead. But it, like you said, yeah, it does add a bit more uh, nuance to the, to this. And I was working on a recent project where uh, where I did this, and uh, it was with um, AppSync projects. So there's a lot of uh, resources that are referencing each other, and uh, so I had to understand my uh, resource graph so that I can pick up all the relevant resources uh, that are part of that graph. So basically walk the graph uh, dependency myself and then pull all of them as much as possible into his own uh, 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 nested stack so that uh, uh, they don't, so to minimize the number of uh, cross stack references. Uh, there, there is a, so basically there's a, there's a way around it, but it does require you to yeah. like learn a lot more about how your resources are being provisioned, understand your graph so that uh, you are and dissecting them nicely in such a way that uh, you minimize those uh, cross stack references yeah. uh, is a bit more work and then to just use one of those uh, built-in uh, groupings that uh, the, the the plugin gives you uh, but yeah. there's a way out it's just um, probably not as easy as, as you would like <laughs> yeah exactly actually we are using the the, the stacks map so in one service we have for instance the separation the log groups goes to one stack versions the, the lambdas go to a different stack. So we have that, but that's something we learned maybe a bit too late on the, on the process. So we tried everything else and then we learned, oh, there is this option that kind of gives you a more reliable way, right? Because then you can really avoid the, the, I don't know, what was the uh, criteria used to, to split the stack? I don't know if it was something like round robbing or something like that. But basically it gives you really full control where you want your resources to be. So that's something we, we use nowadays, but I think it took us a while to learn that. Yeah, I ha also had to do things like uh, uh, you know hashing the, uh, the the resource name so that uh, uh, for the same function or the same resources as much as possible, they always get hashed the same stack so that uh, I don't have to constantly move resources between different stacks when I'm doing something clever. Uh, but yeah, there's there is quite a lot of things you have to, I guess, uh, extra complexity that you hopefully just didn't want to deal with. Uh, but yeah, I, I do get it. Uh, with a CloudFormation, that 200 resource limit is really annoying. And I think they've been 
well, they as in AWS has been hinting at maybe potentially lifting some of that limit. Um, a while back, I think uh, Chris Munz or someone else on Twitter was kind of hinting that, well, something's coming, guys. <laughs> uh, so yeah, let's uh, let's hope uh, something comes out. And because uh, this 200 resource limit is arbitrary, especially when you can just use a nested stack to go up to what. 200 times 200, what's that? That's uh, yeah. 40,000 resources. <laughs> so yeah, you've just... just... It feels like just a legacy thing, right? That's still there and a, a bit hard to remove. But yeah, I think it would make sense to, to remove this. Um, um, for us, it would be an uh, immense uh, thing to have because, like I mentioned, every Lambda maps, uh, every different Lambda, single Lambda maps to a different uh, endpoint and HTTP method. So sometimes on the same HTTP method, uh, same endpoint, you have, I don't know, three or four different methods so that uh, you can actually, if you multiply that by the amount of endpoints a single service can have, then it's so easy to reach this limit that uh, it, it feels that it just doesn't make sense anymore. Yeah, especially if uh, you follow AWS uh, security best practices and have uh, tailored IAM role for every single function. So now you've got every endpoint, you've got the uh, API gateway itself is not particularly efficient in terms of the higher the managed resources. You've got uh, all these different paths and you've got resource and then method. And yeah. then you've got the Lambda function, the Lambda version, the, uh, the log group, uh, and then you've got the IAM role. I mean, all of these things uh, add up pretty quickly, right? So the 200 resources yeah, yeah. is nothing. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> So, okay, I guess uh, let's, uh, let's uh, carry on about uh, your so team structure because I'm also quite curious about how your operational model looks like as well. Um, in terms of the so being on call, in terms of the monitoring side of things, uh, do you have uh, the actual teams themselves uh, be responsible for their own services and be on call for them? Or do you have like a centralized ops team that takes care of a lot of that? Uh... No, actually, all the, the software engineers are responsible for the uptime of uh, of the system. So, I mean, the we have the different stream teams. So each team is responsible for uh, a given set of services. And those engineers are also responsible for making sure these services are up and running. And what we have, we leverage PagerDuty a lot for our incident management. So the the flow is kind of like this. So whenever there is an error uh, on a given service, on application, or sometimes the error levels like uh, goes above a, a given threshold. So there is an alert being created on PagerDuty and there is usually an engineer on call. This engineer on call is not like belong, it's not mapped to the teams, to the domains. They actually come from one of a given domain. So I can be an engineer on call on a given week. And what happens, I'm the first line of defense. So uh, issue comes to me, I can, since we have quite some nice logging standards, it's quite easy for me to pinpoint where the problem is because from the log message, I can already tell everything because in the log message, there is information about the service, uh, the execution status, for instance, if you are cold or, or warm, there is the request trace IDs and a lot of uh, contextual uh, information are there, which helps us uh, understand where the problem comes from. So this first line of defense, can be the engineer that is just gonna, oh, there was a, a message went to the data letter queue. I just need to put it back in the main queue to retry. So that's something this engineering call can easily do. But there are other cases where the problem is a bit more complex. So they're gonna ask for help from the team responsible for the service. And from this point on, the, this issue can even be delegated to this team so they can discuss with the PO and solve it or just solve it if it's really urgent. And apart from that, there is the second, third line of defense. So meaning if the person on call is not available, maybe went out for lunch or something like that, there is the second line of defense that's going to be pinged. Um, they can reply, they can actually do the same process or can just get in touch with other engineers asking for help. And this actually goes up to the CTO. If nobody's available to respond, the CTO is going to be paged and they're going to get in. The CTO going to get in touch with other engineers, see what's happening. But basically, uh, that's the scenario we have. Everybody's responsible at the end. Okay, that's great. Uh, from my experience, uh, putting developers on core is one of the best things you can do to improve uh, reliability and uptime because developers don't want to get caught in the middle of the night when something <laughs> <Exactly>. breaks, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
I think it's the best approach. Uh, it works. I mean, I don't want to introduce bugs because I, I know I'm going to be alerted. So it kind of gives you the mindset, right? That it's your responsibility not to introduce bugs to make sure that everything is well tested and well taken care of to make so that when you are on call, you don't get paged uh, every hour. Uh, so that's uh, something that really helps us indeed. And I guess the same mindset goes towards uh, improving monitoring and all of that as well, because uh, when you're on call and uh, you are under pressure to you know, debug something that's happening in production, you know, not having the right tools and the monitoring and the metrics and, uh, and the logs in place, that that's you that's going to be struggling to, to find these problems. And it really helps improve those, uh, those I guess, operational practices uh, when you are on the hook to you know, fix, fix problems and identify problems and fix them quickly. So for so for that, what do you guys use for all the monitoring side of things and the, all the sort of the uh, the runtime monitoring and alerting? Uh, so we use a lot of uh, we use X-ray, we use Sentry, we use CloudWatch and Datadog, and ultimately uh, PagerDuty. So these are all integrated, and like I mentioned, we provide the tooling to make sure that uh, developers are doing the right thing. So we have tooling that whenever a service is being deployed, it's going to make checks if all these integrations are in place because, of course, we don't want to deploy a service that's not hooked into Sentry or PagerDuty because it means that error happens. We will only see if there is uh, someone looking at the, the log stream or, or, or something like that. So the integration must be there. And so, yeah, that's what we rely on. Um, I think Sentry, it's really uh, amazing tool. Um, battle tests that we use, uh, I think, our, our services from the front end to the back end uh, we rely a lot on Sentry and we have the integration from Sentry to PagerDuty that uh, it's going to be alerted, an uh, incident is going to be created. And yeah, I think that that's the, the tooling we use uh, nowadays for the monitoring part. And a lot of the dashboards we have are in Datadog. So we are relying more and more on Datadog for dashboards, for monitoring, for alerting as well. And uh, we have even monitors for external pooling, right? Because like I mentioned, we rely a lot on external vendors. So imagine that uh, the service that provides you a, a way for people to, to, to sign documents, uh, if that's down, we need to know as soon as possible, right? So we have monitor for that service as well. So whenever we monitor the API from our side, we also monitor their status page. So whenever one of those uh, change something, that we are alerted to make sure we are on top of the issue uh, already, even before. Sometimes we actually get the, the alerts even before they update the status page, right? I think you know how it goes. Those status pages sometimes are uh, just for show because, yeah, they take uh, some two hours or maybe even four hours to be updated. And that's, yeah, for sure not something we can we can have. We cannot wait four hours to, to understand what's happening with the service we rely on. So, yeah, the, I think that's uh, more or less the tooling we have around this. Okay. I'm curious about the choice uh, to go with Datadog because uh, the pricing model where they charge you, was we'll it $5 per resource, is really not great for Lambda when you've got uh, easily have lots of Lambda functions. You're going to be paying five bucks per month uh, for each of those. Um, are you using it just for metrics or do you use uh, metrics and logs as well? Uh, we use for. For metrics, we use for logging, uh, but we don't have native integration with data, Datadog and Lambdas. So basically, everything that we get to Datadog, we inject into Datadog. So for instance, we uh, the logs are, of course, they go to CloudWatch, and then they are brought back to Datadog. They are uh, fed to Datadog. Then for the metrics, we also have a special way of logging messages, and these messages will become uh, metrics inside Datadog where we can create monitors on, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's uh, how we we are using Datadog right now. So I hope we don't have any native integration with uh, our systems in terms of agents, et cetera. Actually, I don't have visibility a lot on the container part. I'm not sure if the containers are using the Datadog agents. That's something I would have to verify. But, but yeah, that's how we rely on Datadog. There are, there are some things that I'd like to see uh, a lot of improvements in there. So for instance, there is no full text search. So you need to really index uh, all the, the fields that we, you want to be searched on in advance. So whenever you introduce 
a new field to your JSON uh, uh, log message, you need to make sure that on first appearance that gets indexed. So on the next appearance, then you can search on that field. So that kind of, it's a, it's a bit tricky. Since we have standardized uh, logging, it kind of helps because most of the things we have by default are already indexed. But if you have to introduce something else, then it's kind of uh, a pain in the ass indeed. Yeah, so I think you were talking about the docs.d format, uh, which if you got the data doc to ingest your logs from CloudWatch logs, then the, it will automatically turn them into custom metrics. Um, nowadays, uh, CloudWatch also supports that, uh, but it uses a really verbose format, uh, which I don't like, but it does have got this thing called the embedded metric format, which uh, you can uh, basically write a JSON blob to CloudWatch logs from Lambda, and uh, that gets turned into custom metric. One of the reasons why I, I don't really, I still don't use the Datadog um, for metrics is that uh, the ingestion time uh, has delay so that my alert doesn't fire for another few minutes, uh, which in case uh, when there's an emergency, when something is happening, that means uh, you know, it takes me a few more minutes just to know that something is happening, uh, which is why at the zone, uh, my previous company, that even though we were using Datadog to ingest all this, these things uh, into um, from CloudWatch and CloudWatch logs, we're still using CloudWatch and the CloudWatch metrics and the CloudWatch dashboard for uh, alerting and the metrics, but we're using Datadogs for all the logs. But like Datadog is so expensive, uh, especially given the, the the pricing is based on number of resources you have, and with Lambda yeah. you end up with you know hundreds, maybe thousands of these things, uh, and it gets expensive really quickly. So they actually did this big migration away from Datadog uh, because the contract just got too expensive. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, um, but yeah, so that's okay. That's cool. So um, uh, yeah, thank you for walking me through all of the uh, all of the tools that you guys are using. Uh, I want to maybe circle back to a little bit about the uh, code uh, code starts because you said that you've got some Java functions as well, uh, and we're seeing a lot of people adopt uh, the provision concurrency settings uh, with Java functions. Is that something that you guys have uh, played around with? Um, I played around with it, but that's not something we have in production yet. We are still relying on our own awareness. We call them like a central heating system. So basically each serverless project, they have this warmer lambda. So on the serverless YAML, all you need to define is the concurrency you want each lambda to have. And this warmer lambda will make sure that they get pinged uh, accordingly. So that's, uh, I think the setup we have for the warmers. We haven't tried on production with the provision concurrency. That's for sure something would be a really additional for us, but it comes with a bit of a price because since we rely on our warmers, we were actually kind of a hidden feature, right? Because if you ping the Lambda uh, quite often, it means that you can actually refresh uh, secrets and in-memory cache. And we do that a lot for secrets coming from parameter store or other secret management thing. So basically we sometimes load some stuff in memory and basically what the warmer provides since it's pinged, then you can always keep this in memory cache up to date. So uh, we can generate tokens, we can uh, uh, store tokens in there. We can do a lot of stuff during this uh, refreshing part that we otherwise wouldn't be able to do on provision concurrency. Of course, there are other ways to achieve that, but that would be quite a, quite a change for us. So I think that's maybe the main reason we are not uh, actively using a uh, provision concurrency, but for sure, I think it's uh, one of the, the, the things most people were waiting for since we started with serverless, right? It was the uh, provision concurrency, but we have a lot of stuff uh, around the cold starts because like I mentioned, the decision was made on the early days to, to go for serverless and especially for Lambdas. And in 2018, where we started moving everything into different uh, microservices, we did uh, quite extensive research. If Lambdas were ready for HTTP APIs at the time, there were still quite some blog posts about Lambda is good, but not ready for customer facing APIs. And we really wanted to validate that. We, we knew already some people using it like you, uh, I think at the time you were at the zone, so I, I knew you guys were using it and I knew some other companies using it as well. So we went to, to verify this. We actually found really interesting results, like I mentioned. Sometimes the code start in simple services are around 800 milliseconds. And even on complex services, if they are running on Python or, or JavaScript, you can get uh, one 1.5 seconds of a code start. And that's for us, it's really acceptable. 
And from the beginning, our goal was to have really lean lambdas around less than five megabytes, which is uh, something relatively easy to, to achieve with JavaScript, but at the same time, a bit harder, right? Because none of the tooling and none of the modules we have for basically any language were not made for serverless, uh, especially with the cold starts in mind. So sometimes you have JavaScript uh, library that's doing such a, a simple thing, but it depends on libraries or modules that are, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 megabytes. And at, all of a sudden you install something quite simple on your service and you get bundles that went from two megabytes to 15 megabytes. And of course that's gonna come with a price. So we did some, a lot of research. There is a, even a website called Package Phobia. I think it was a great resource for us to understand uh, how we were leveraging uh, these uh, node modules. And in some cases we managed to reduce the size. So for instance, uh, we wanted to use the AWS SDK, but that library came baked with the SDK inside, which is not needed if you use in Lambda, and also came with Lodash and other huge libraries. And at the time it had 40 megabytes of after install and we were like, whoa, we don't, we don't want that and we don't need that. So we kind of forked uh, that library and was at the same time that Node 10 was released and the X-Ray SDK was not actually uh, working with Node 10 because of the async await, etc. So basically we forked, we introduced the support for the Node 10 and at the same time we removed a lot of the boilerplate and stuff we didn't need like the, S the AWS SDK um, the Lodash and other things. And majority of our services are responding now in less than two seconds on a cold start. And like I mentioned, we have uh, some services with one second. So in theory, everything worked fine. And we proved that in, <laughs> in practice, everything also worked fine. So we were really happy with the results. And basically nowadays, Cold starts are not even a topic uh, anymore among the among the developers, unless something uh, quite tricky must be introduced. Otherwise, I think it's just uh, built-in into our tooling and everything else that we provide. That is not something we care as much nowadays because we know that the lambdas will have really uh, lean size, so that's uh, already kind of guaranteed whenever we start a new service. Unless, of course, the service is Java, then yeah, extra. Uh, caution must be taken, but otherwise, I think we're pretty happy with the setup we have for JavaScript and Python on this. Have you tried using a bundler like Webpack with the serverless Webpack plugin, for example, because that basically solves most of your problems in terms of the reducing the size, but also importantly, because a lot of the time that goes into the code start for those dependencies is actually just file I/O and CPU to do the uh, resolution and to, to uh, file system calls to load those files. So when you've got a bundler that bundles everything together and uh, doing, doing the whole um, tree shaking as well, uh, that makes a massive difference. And uh, if you're also doing things like um, don't require the full AWS DK, just require specific clients that you need, uh, that also makes a big difference as well. I did a bunch of testing a while back and uh, I was able to reduce it, um, the module initialization time from what, 200, 300 milliseconds uh, to uh, about 50, 60 milliseconds at the 90 percentile or 95th percentile just by doing you know, two, those two things, requiring just the SDK client rather than the whole AWS SDK and uh, applying the um, uh, web, uh, Webpack bundling. And that's it. Uh, just two things for JavaScript functions. Yeah, uh, that's something we, we do. I think everything you mentioned is something we, we, we actually do. For instance, the Webpack is something we started really uh, from the get-go. Uh, so we have a kind of a serverless uh, boilerplate setup that has the Webpack, uh, that, that the lambdas are packed individually to make sure that, yeah, it only loads the resources it actually needs to avoid loading, I don't know, the SDK on, not the SDK, but um, external SDK on a Lambda that's not even contact uh, the, the service from that SDK. So that's something we are actively uh, doing as well. And we try to to always uh, keeping, keep track of our response times because uh, that kind of relates a lot with the code starts, right? Because if we see an increase on the response times, we need to look into, hey, uh, what was changed? Is this because of uh, infra issues like, uh, 
there is a latency issue on API gateway lambda integration or something like that, or is, is it due to our code store? And this is actually where the X-ray really helps uh, debugging this, because I think without X-ray and the instrumentation it provides to, to debug everything, I think it would be insanely hard to actually uh, make sense of uh, all these uh, things, right? Of the code start and the initialization part. And yeah, when, where your, your Lambda is your, your execution is, uh, is spending time, right? So yeah, those are the things that yeah, you need to be mindful always indeed. Yeah, in, in fact, uh, uh, there's actually quite a lot of other tools nowadays that can offer something similar to uh, what X-Ray offers. Uh, uh, but uh, X-Ray is like a first-party tool, um, whereas the other services, you have to pay for them. So I guess um, this is, uh, I think this is uh, all the questions that I had uh, in mind. Uh, thank you so much, Ricardo, for taking the time to talk to us today. So before we go, can you maybe tell people how to find you on the internet? Yeah, sure. So uh, on LinkedIn, I'm a Ricardo Torres dev, or if you just search for Ricardo Torres uh, Newton, it should uh, pop up. Um, on Twitter, I'm Ricardinho Torres. That's not the best thing, but you can easily find me by my name. And on GitHub, I'm Rick Torres. So I'm, I try to be quite act active on uh, open source com community as well, always trying to give giving back with the community. I guess without the uh, open source community, we wouldn't even exist. We wouldn't even be here uh, talking about this. So I think uh, that's the, the least we can do, right? So it would be nice if anybody wants to get in touch, uh, I'll be here. And thanks a lot for having me. I think it was an immense pleasure. And uh, it's such an honor to, 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 to be talking to you, a person that I learned so much regarding serverless. Thanks a lot. <laughs> no worries. Uh, thanks for uh, agreeing to do this. So um, I guess the one last question about uh, New 10. Uh, are you guys hiring? Because uh, right now I see a lot of people looking for jobs. At the same time, there's a lot of companies that are still looking to uh, recruit. Uh, are you guys doing anything at the New 10? Yes, we are hiring. If you check our page on LinkedIn, uh, there is always uh, open uh, vacancies in there in different departments, uh, data, either Salesforce, and uh, also engineering. I'm not sure if we have any opens on the engineering side right now, especially for, for working with Lambdas, but just keep an eye on it because we are always uh, looking for new talents and yeah. Excellent. Uh, and with that, I guess uh, stay safe and uh, hopefully see you in person sometime soon. <laughs> you too. Take care. Take care, man. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So that's it for another episode of Real World Serverless. To access the show notes, please go to realworldserverless.com. If you want to learn how to build production-ready serverless applications, please check out my upcoming courses at productionreadyserverless.com. And I'll see you guys next time.